0: Hello, and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast follow up show, fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing Team. My name is Neil Morris, and I'm going to be hosting today's show. And I'm glad to say that I've got, uh, well, three guests with me. We've got uh, Mr. David Emmett of Motormatters.com. Hello, David. Hello, Neil. We've got Mr. Adam Wheeler from On Track Off Road. Hello, Adam.
1: Hi, Neil. Hello, hello.
0: And I'm delighted to say we've got a new guest uh, making his first uh, appearance on the show as a a proper guest, uh, uh, ex-MotoGP rider, uh, also pundit on BT Sport, Mr Michael Laverty. Hello Michael, how are you doing?
2: Hi Neil, very well, thank you very much.
0: Great to have you on the show. Uh, Where do we find you at the moment, Michael?
2: I've just arrived in London actually, we're kicking off from here tomorrow up on the BT Tower for commentary from Free Practice 1, so fighting the traffic and just arrived at my hotel.
0: Right, fantastic, great to hear that you're arrived and ready for, well, another weekend. We're already on the eve of the, uh, the Catalan GP, such is the, uh, the schedule, coming thick and fast at the moment are the rounds, but obviously this is the show on which we'll focus on the happenings in Model 2 and Model 3 from the Italian Grand Prix. Now, I mean, we have to start with, uh, well, the, the biggest event of the weekend, um, really sad news, unfortunate passing of um, Jason DeBasque, 19-year-old Swiss rider competing in Model 3, um, who eventually died of injuries he sustained in a pretty ugly um, qualifying spill. Um, and just to come to you, Michael, um, I mean, it was a, a terrible event. Um, it was horrible that we had to see it live. We had to see the aftermath of it live. I mean, how did you guys see it? You're obviously commentating on the uh, the event live at the time. Um, how did you see the thing? And, you know, what, what were your thoughts on on Jason really as a whole?
2: Yeah, it was horrible. Actually, I was commentating that session with Gavin Emmett and, I seen the incident happen and unfold and I didn't quite realize the seriousness of it and then when I seen him getting treated there trackside and actually that wasn't very nice to witness that the cameras were on there and we've seen the the marshals holding up the IVs and that it just really brings it home and whenever you get to witness that it's horrible. I know from a writer's perspective sitting back in the pit box and watching it on the monitors what you're feeling you're always worried about your fellow writers so yeah, it was a, a tragedy really and then to for the news to be announced just between races on Sunday and then the minute silence on the grid, it was, it was such a tough weekend and I really felt for the riders. I know they are kind of the the race weekends all encompassing and you're really focused on yourself, but whenever something like that happens, it does kind of take your thought away from that selfish kind of racer mode. So you start to, to think that you are fallible. You start to realize the dangers of the sport and it really brings it home when it happens to a friend, to someone you know, on on a race weekend, and and when the the news is announced on a race weekend, it's it's so tough. So I really felt for the guys, and it is for me now that I'm sort of semi-retired I still do a bit of endurance. But now I actually look at the dangers when I was in out there racing. I never really did. You just you get kind of that tunnel vision. You're just focused on the end result, and then whenever you you kind of step back and you you see the inherent dangers of the sport. It is Jack Miller put it so well, and I think your article on. On track off road this week was fantastic, Neil. Just um, eloquently put, and and it sums it up so well. I think it's we're, you're never going to stop the boys doing it. We all love it. You're never going to remove that risk that getting struck by another rider. That is, I was hit once by a bike when I was was laid in the middle of the track, and it was always my biggest fear again in my career. So it's something that even with the best safety updates in terms of helmet leathers the gravel traps the green paint at the side of the track it's one of those dangers that we're never going to remove from the sport and unfortunately jason uh, succumbed to his injuries so yeah I, I really i feel for his family and his friends and his his younger brother who's who's dealing with that right now
0: yeah, absolutely. Obviously, uh, everyone at the Paddock Pass podcast offers, offers their condolences uh, to Jason's family, friends, and team as well. Um, and, and Michael, we were um, we discussed this a little bit on our previous show this week, um, just about the circumstances in which the MotoGP riders had to had to go about and do their race. I mean, it was quite remarkable to see what happened. Them mourning Jason with uh, you know his team basically on the grid ten minutes before the race started. Can as a as a rider, you know, can you even begin to imagine how how, how would you process that? Is it just kind of tunnel vision block this out, try and not think about it too deeply before the race starts? Uh, I mean, how would you go about that as a racer?
2: The thirty minutes leading up to any race are the the most nervous part of a weekend. So the emotional side of it, whenever you're going through all those emotions anyway, and then to to mourn one of your, your fellow riders on the grid just before you're about to put your helmet on and, and go into turn one for the MotoGP riders at 200 by an hour. It's, it's a daunting prospect and one I can't imagine going through myself. I've been in similar cir- circumstances where I've lost friends and even going to their funerals or whenever you hear it and hear the the, the news, It's it's got such a, a deep impact and it is tough as racers you do. I think that's why sports psychologists are such a benefit. They they teach you how to box up those emotions. Sometimes put them to the back of your mind and focus on the job at hand. It's a callous thing to do, but it, actually it can it can work. But I don't know how how those guys were feeling on Sunday,
1: Michael. Um, you know you've seen plenty of Moto three races over the year. I mean, not wanting to sound too kind of negative or morbid, but do you think some sort of accident or incident like this was? inevitable just because of the proximity of the racing and the way the guys are so close. Uh, had the classmen living on borrowed time, so to speak? Um you don't want to actually point out the obvious, but I guess yes, because you
2: you look you watch any race from Magello over the years and there's twenty bikes within 50 meters of racetrack they're all just you know so condensed together that getting struck by another uh another bike is it's an inevitability and unfortunately it probably will happen again we hope it doesn't happen for another 10 15 20 years but unfortunately it probably will happen again and it's one of those dangers we can't remove from the sport and when you watch a moto three race that does it is scary you watch it between you know between <laughs> I close your eyes at times and it is um it's scary times even in qualifying to be honest whenever they're looking for that toe and some of the young riders that haven't experienced the the dangers of it and they haven't been bit yet they sometimes they they don't know to close the throttle they don't know to leave you know a few meters for that um that error or to get out of a problem they're just wide open and they're so worried about the lap time because that's all that matters to them at that moment but with experience you learn to to kind of uh, look for that self-preservation a little bit more and thinking about your fellow riders. So it does scare me sometimes when you see a 16-year-old kid
3: wide open. Uh, Michael, one question, um, a bit of a difficult question really. Is it, as a rider, is this the one thing which you view differently? Because, you know, the the other dangers, the other crashes, um, you have in your own hands to an extent because you understand the risk, you know the risk you're taking, you know that you are sort of pushing the limit, trying to find the limit. But this is one of those ones you fall. If someone is coming behind you and they're too close, there's nothing you can do about it. Is it something that you view differently? You touched on it a little bit, but...
2: Yeah, definitely, and it is one that you actually think about more. So, depending on the writers around you, and actually, I've spoken to John McPhee about this recently, and and he does. There's certain writers he doesn't like being around because of that, because he knows they get targets fixation. They almost they can't avoid uh, that incident. They will make contact, and some writers are better than others at, at that um, at learning how to get out of trouble. So it is something that you do. You as a racer, you can't let it play in your mind, but every now and again, when it sneaks in. And I always said, whenever a race that I didn't, uh, once I started thinking about those dangers and those elements, it was time to get off. And and actually now I I do actually think about it a little bit more. So I'm planning to go race Le Bon 24 hour next weekend. And with what happened <laughs> to Jason last week, and then those sort of thoughts creep in that it could you just never know. You know it it could happen to anyone at any time, and it's something that you can't you can't remove that danger. As I mentioned, the circuits are so much safer now. It it is it, you know the safety has
1: come on leaps and bounds. Michael, um, you know, obviously talking about Moto3, one of the standout news items coming from this season is Pedro Acosta. I mean, he's got a bigger championship lead than anybody on, on all the classes. Um, what's, what's your take on him? I mean, is he the real deal or is he somebody that's just hit the ground running and everybody else is just trying to catch up?
2: No, I think he's the real deal. I think he's definitely had a good preparation, I think, um is it Paco Marmol as trainer, as coach, working down there at the Fortuna circuit? They've they've given him a good education that at 16 years old, he was ready to race, even without much experience in the Junior World Championship. Those couple of years in the Red Bull rookies have just set him up to come into Moto3 and hit the ground running. But it's how he handled those races in Portugal, those last lap battles, the ability and Jerez on a day when his bike wasn't the best on track. It wasn't nearly the best and he managed to win the race. He would have been lucky to scrape a top five, if if he let those the the kind of things that he was facing out race daunt him, so I think, given the right opportunities in the right place, there with KTM with Red Bull backing to go Moto Three, Moto Two, Moto GP, and I think actually other factories may try and poach him because they've seen such a such a talent and such an ability, such a racecraft and maturity and uh, eloquence when he speaks. He's just he is an all round like complete package.
0: Uh, Michael I think um, our colleague Steve who's normally on this show um, was speaking to your brother Eugene at the World Superbike test um, and I think Eugene is quite a fan of uh, of Pedro and he, he was saying that it's clear from watching Pedro and how he deals with last lap battles that he's kind of studied a lot of Moto3 races in the past and he knows kind of just where to put his bike and certain points on the track on the last lap battle which just are so effective we saw it in Portimao we saw it at Jerez as well is that something that you've kind of noticed as well that he seems to just have this kind of maybe he's you know he's kind of gone back and studied uh, things in the past to help him know just where to where to be precise where to put his bike
2: we always said about Valentino Rossi and in the battle it was almost like he had a rear view he had some kind of mirrors because he could he could position himself to make it really awkward for the guys behind but also, in that closeness of the battle, I think, uh turn three at Portugal in the last lap in Porto Portimao, he came in there sideways. Normally, most riders would have made contact with the guy in front or they would have picked up, but that's his ability to be that close and still fully under control, not make contact not even miss his apex, drifting a Moto3 bike into the apex. Though that presence of mind, that spatial awareness and the control of his machine, that was, for me, that was a real special move. And he he done similar at uh, turn six in Harath as well in the last lap battle. So composed under pressure with a bike moving with riders all around him, you know, very good awareness of, of what he could get away with.
0: Yes, certainly. Pedro Aposta has uh, impressed pretty much everyone in his uh, start to life as a full-time Moto3 rider. Um, We're going to, I guess, talk about um, Moto2, Moto3 and Magello now, Um, going back to the the Italian Grand Prix, which just happened a couple of days ago. Uh, Let's start with um, Moto2. Um, I mean, it was obviously a a very somber day, held in extremely emotional and difficult circumstances, but we actually did have two really uh, quite quite good races in uh, in moto two and moto three i mean moto two guys um you know it was uh it was it should have been a three-way fight at the front right until the right until the flag i think you know ralph fernandez sam lows uh remy gardner they were just a, a kind of a cut above um but david starting with you uh, there's just so much to so much to kind of admire about remy gardner this year i mean he is um he does look like a, a complete championship package doesn't he
3: yeah I, yeah i mean really the maturity is what's impressive just the, the, like the calmness um uh, the patience like i think i always think that patience is one of the most underrated virtues of a racer um which i mean it's almost like it goes against everything which motorcycle racing about motorcycle racing is about going as fast as possible so you expect them all to be completely mental but you have to be patient. You have to be able to wait, and that was exactly what he, what, he, um, uh, what Remy did. He, you know, he kept his powder dry throughout the race. He uh, uh, sat there w- w- with um, with Fernandez. He didn't engage when he didn't need to. Um, uh, waited, waited until you know the last possible opportunity uh, passed and went on to win. It was just, it was a superb race. I mean, Fernandez is outstanding really outstanding but remy just has something this year he has something over him uh that kind of maturity you saw it again today in the uh, in the press conference in uh, in the Most gp press conference very relaxed very calm uh, very focused um he he is on it as um uh, mr lowes might say
1: I am um, one thing about Remy and you know he spoke about it again today we we're recording this on on Thursday just after the press conference in Catalonia was uh you know he admitted he had put in a few years of hard graft uh flogging bikes were not necessarily competitive um and when he actually did have the equipment to do something in 2019 he wasn't ready you know to run at the front he made mistakes couldn't win races couldn't learn to wait well, didn't Embrace the skill to be able to succeed. Um, and now I think he's got that with not only the team around him, but also the technical package. So, you know, it's all sort of coming together at the right time. And uh, he admitted that some of those hard seasons were character building um so you know i think it's uh, it's all pointing in the right direction for him and now he's got that grand prix ride then it's uh it's really encouraging but it's, it's curious what you say there about motorcycle racers having patience i don't know what you did to blow off steam michael but i remember um you know interviewing james stewart about this uh, obviously you know one of the most fastest and uh famous supercross motocross uh, riders in the u.s and it amazed me how Somebody that could attack a set of whoops uh, and have the skill on the motorcycle like he did, that was always aggressive and so furious. I mean, to watch him trackside was a real marvel. Uh, and you know, he would go and play golf uh, on his day off. That would be, you know, you can get more of a contrast in sports. I think. I mean, certainly not when it comes to concentration and and you know skill sets, but just the aggression and and the you know the the violence of it, if you like.
2: Yeah, definitely. According to the rider's temperament, I think uh, the Lowe's boys love golf. Leon Haslam loves golf. Not many GP riders kind of find a, a golf course on the Tuesday, Wednesday before a race. But in Superbike, it's quite, quite popular. I think uh, actually the a lot of the GP riders do what or try to do what James Stewart did with without the same authority, hit a motocross track, hit a, a dirt track and go and and, uh, and blow off a little bit of steam there because that's. Most of them are passionate about off roading and they just can't ride it as good as the MXGP and the AMA Supercross riders, but they want to, so they go there, have fun, and it's actually classified as as training. So you get to to have have fun, train,
1: and uh, well, if you if you keep yourself um, injury free, that's all well and good. What was your uh, what was your way to get away from the stresses or or the intensity of racing?
2: Um, weirdly, I like to to watch movies, read just normal things. I loved I loved riding bikes, so it was the same I would go motocross cycle. I like to just keep active hobbies, whether it was karting, if I was lucky enough to be down in Andorra in the winter, go skiing, go snowboarding, just um outdoors and, and be active. So I, I never really
1: stopped and I kinda miss that now. Sorry to be dominant on you know on, on the podcast, but you know, what do you guys think about Sam Lowe's then? Because, you know, that mistake and that DNF uh, has that kind of really tightened the line, the, the the margin to be a world championship contender? I mean, he really can't afford too many mistakes now, can he?
3: No, I mean he's uh, he's so fast. He really is so fast. When he's riding, he's just superb. It's just those mistakes, and they're the very they're not even you know sort of really big stupid mistakes they're just very very small errors which go just over the limit but just over the limit you know they might as well be stupid mistakes um he's just straying a little bit just putting his toes over the line and then falling over the cliff sort of thing which is a shame and i think it you know it really is getting very difficult he's in a very difficult situation um he's a long way behind in the uh, uh, in the championship what is he uh, what 50 yeah nearly 50 points i think um that's a lot of ground to make up, uh, even though we are not even halfway through the championship yet. Um, I mean, honestly, Sam Lowe's is riding really, really well. I think his, um, <clears throat> the, the way that he's approached the races, the way that he's been riding, that's been superb, but he still keeps still making these mistakes. And that is really, um, that's difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the three mistakes that we've seen from Sam in races this year, it's been a Portugal, France, Mugello, you could say that he's had the potential to win each of those races, certainly finish on the podium at the minimum. Um, so he certainly had the speed everywhere we've gone so far this year. But Michael, it just, uh, I guess, you know, when you're riding at that level and you look at the Mugello race in Moto2, it was a really fast race that uh, that Fernandez was riding at the front. You know, it's obvious that Sam was on the on the edge trying to, to reel him in. I mean, how did you see the, the fall from him? For
2: me, that was Sam's proper mis- our first proper mistake that uh, was his fault that he was pushing the front a little bit too hard on a day when the front tire was actually given some problems. So I'll I'll give Sam the blame for that one. But the other two were almost coming into contact with Chavi Vierge and Le Mans. That's not really Sam just making an error and crashing. That was there were circumstances involved, and then similar in Portugal. But there yeah. were a little bit of rushing blood to the head. If he kind of controlled his emotions there, he would have been out with a bag full of points so as David said his speed is without question this year and I've been accused of being biased because I've been so pro-Sam this year and I just want him to bring home the points is the problem for him is now his rival and Remy Gardner is so consistent and Raul Fernandez actually as a rookie has proven consistent as well so he can't afford to give away those points even though he was able to pull back such a deficit last season but he he needs to kind of Bring it home. He's got the speed to win races. He's got the speed to stand in the podium every weekend. He looks awesome on the bike. But had it been different, and he had three victories instead of those three crashes, would be all of a sudden floating his name for MotoGP next year. And it's such a shame with Sam's speed, he's in the position he's in where people are knocking him again, and he's he's fixed those errors. He doesn't make um, those crashes where he's losing the front. He's he's much more in control of his bike. That. One in Mugello was the first real front end in, in a race. The other two, as I mentioned, their circumstances involved. So I, I look back to his Qatar wins and how mature he rode in those and how fast he was and controlled. The same in Jerez to be back in the podium. So I think Sam, can he can steady the ship. He can turn this around.
0: Yeah, obviously had a good test in, in Barcelona, I think, prior to the Italian Grand Prix. Uh, also um, had a great race here last year, uh, finishing second just behind Luca Marini. So... There is a great opportunity for him to get his uh, get his season back on track after two costly DNFS. Hey, Michael, we talked a little bit about Pedro Acosta in Moto Three, but we have to talk about Ralph Fernandez in Moto Two because, you know, for me, I thought the first five races okay. He was riding well, consistent you know one two races astonishing but uh, to do it Magello, a pretty difficult track to learn I think he'd only been there once previously on a Moto 3 machine so he was coming there with very little experience um, obviously he must have had the arm pump issues that he had at in the back of his mind somewhere yeah he was astonishing right the way through the weekend um, poor position led most of the race up until the last lap I mean he, he, he's another guy you could say he looks like the real deal
2: Yeah, definitely. He's been ultra impressive this season. I did expect him to kind of suit the Moto2 bike, but I never expected him as a rookie to be as strong and consistent as he is. And as you mentioned, difficult tracks. Portugal as well and Portimao, you got the victory there. A really tough track with all undulation and the hills. Same again in in Magello. He can deal with the bike on the move. As we saw last season, he... Back to Moto3 bike in more than anyone I've ever seen before. And uh, it was probably his size that hindered him in terms of speed and overworking the tyres, whereas now he's found a nice compromise with the 765. He's got the torque to... He can rear-wheel steer in and out, and he's got the torque to do that. So I think... Likewise with Pedro, I think he is—he's uh, got a bright future ahead of him, and he's Akyi kind of spoiled at the moment. He's got such a yeah. such a talented roster.
0: Yeah, it's quite incredible. Uh, I, I had a little interview with uh, Herve Pontural earlier today, and asked him about you know what's the what's the second seat looking like in his team for 2020, uh, 22. And he was saying, well, you know, there's a possibility of Petrucci being there, possibility of Lekona being there, but you know, this other model two rider that I cannot name, I guess there's a good chance of him being there too. So, I mean, so he didn't say anything really then, Neil, <laughs> it's quite possible.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's like quite our, possible. like our race predictions, basically just, you know, reel off all of the names on the
0: grid well,
1: there, might, there might be a veteran Italian available next year, you know, he could be
3: on the boat. Yeah, it might be, yeah.
0: I, I just thought the fact that he would even mention the, the possible model 2 name is uh, quite interesting, you know, he wasn't denying it, that there's a chance that Raoul is there. I mean, David, do you think that um, you know, would it be wise to move Raoul up uh, after only one season of model 2
3: uh, I mean, you know, well, uh, Juan Mia thinks uh, it's not such a terribly bad idea. Um that there's yeah you can do it you can you you can quite clearly do it it's not a problem um i don't think i think i've said this before and i'll say it again the, the there is a difference from uh, previous instances where the, with the honda motor 2 engine because the honda motor 2 engine the electronics were very um simple there wasn't a great deal they could do with them the moto uh, motor 3 but or the the, the new motor 2 bikes the triumph 765 engine it uh, has a lot more torque it has uh it, it's more like a MotoGP engine it's still a long long way off um it has a lot more sophisticated electronics you can work with a little bit of traction control you can work with a little bit of engine braking it's all very very restricted still but um the riders get to understand what you can do with electronics uh, which is something you know quite difficult to get your head around sometimes and so I think um it's not like you need to get through Moto2 as quickly as possible uh, as it was in the past with the honda engines which were just really too simplistic for you to be able to learn things uh the triumph engines is a much better learning platform a development platform for a rider uh and so if he uh, i think absolutely ralph fernandez could go straight through to Mo to, to, to gp and i don't think it'd be a bad move but i don't think it'd be a bad move if he stays there i don't think uh, you know I, I, either way um it's going to be good for him as a rider Plus, plus, he gets the, he gets a chance, if he doesn't win this year, then he gets a chance next year to win a championship. And I think winning a championship is also a really important lesson for a rider because it teaches you how to manage situations.
2: The the one thing I would say on that is sometimes you're worried about missing out because if Raul has that option and he's thinking, actually, Pedro Acosta's behind me, if I stay one more year, Pedro could take
1: that seat. So it is it is tough. If if that's on offer, it would be tough for Ral to turn it down. If you look at the rest of the Moto2 field, I mean, Remy Gardner has already confirmed to go to Murder GP, And again, another sign of his, e- of his evolution was post-race in Magella. He was talking about having to change his style mid-race to cope with some front-end issues. I mean, again, that shows a sort of a rate of development and maturity. But, you know, um, as journalists, we like to say to riders, you know, do you feel happy that you confirmed the contract? Has it made you more uh, relaxed, secure and stuff like that? And it may seem a bit of a stupid question, but... You know, if you take the case of someone like Marco Bezzecchi, who I always thought would have been a little bit more competitive at his home Grand Prix. Um, there's probably no other rider in Moto2 who's primed for a step into MotoGP. Um, it could be behind the scenes that he's already lined up. You know, there could be a deal, you know, all worked out and we don't know about it yet. But, you know, he being a VR46 rider, you would say is the most likely rider to jump out of Moto2 into MotoGP. And that hasn't been announced it maybe hasn't been done yet, so you wonder how that might affect him. You know, in the next sort of four to five races, if he's seeing, you know, maybe Fernandez confirmed, Gardner's been confirmed. You know, he's going to be thinking, well, where's my slot? I mean, that could uh, affect some of his performances um, in the Grand Prix to come.
3: Yeah, and it's difficult also because of the ju- ju- just the slots which are available in Moto in Moto GP. It's not at all sure. I mean, we're going to see Fabio Di De Gian-, De Gian Antonio stepping up with Grassini because he's got a contract. Um, but i mean is there going to be an extra is there going to be a, a space for bateki um uh, you know who who takes uh, valentina rossi's slot if he retires there's there's still sort of lots of uh, lots of questions
0: obviously this is a, a show with a prominent uh, listenership in UK, Ireland. Um, so, Michael, when you're here, just like to take the advantage of, of you being here to ask a little bit about the other British rider that's um, in Model 2 at the moment. I mean, Jake Dixon had a, a great start to the year coming back from a really difficult and uh, quite serious uh, wrist injury that he suffered at the end of last year. He was... You know, he came out all guns blazing at the first race. I think he finished seventh, but it's just not quite gone the plan for him since then. I mean, how, how do you kind of see Jake's, um, Jake's season so far? Because the last few races, I mean, Le Mans, I was a wee bit surprised not to see him up there because those were conditions that, you know, he should be very, very strong in. Um, but it just seems that there's something at the moment. I mean, obviously, the injury is playing a part, but how, how do you kind of see Jake's season?
2: A little bit surprised, actually, because of his progression last season up to... The point he got injured, he was just he was so impressive. He really had kind of found his feet in the Moto two class, gelled with the team, suited the Kalex chassis so much better than the KTM before that, and it just it's all gone awry for him now. And it, and when you speak to him, it's tough for him to put his finger on what the cause is. It does seem like he's chasing something in terms of uh, re- the setup of the machine to give him the feeling he had last year. So I know as a writer, and especially Moto Two, because the margins are so small and everyone's on such similar equipment that when you're missing that little bit, it's only one or two percent, and all of a sudden you're a long way off. So you can look very average in a hurry. In Moto Two, we've seen it with Sam Lowes go from Grassini to Mark VDS and become a writer who's immediately the fastest guy in the field last season, and really struggled the year before with more or less the same equipment but just had it in a different window with the uh, Gilles Bigot and the Mark VDS squad so I think Jake is chasing something in terms of setup I hope he finds it soon because it's a tough class and you don't want to go through too many races like that you start to lose confidence and you start to doubt yourself and Jake's very he's got a lot of self-belief but in in that category you you know a few rounds like that you do start to beat yourself up a bit so uh, I'd like to see a bit of a return to form this weekend in Catalunya was very fast around here last year.
0: Yeah, let's hope we can uh, we can see some shoots of recovery from Jake uh, this weekend. Uh, just moving swiftly on uh, as we come to the the end of our show. I guess uh, we should uh, talk about the Moto three race. It was a uh, well great race as it always is in Mugello. I think uh, I was looking at some stats earlier. Still haven't had a bigger winning margin in Mugello in Model Three than zero uh, point one seconds, which is quite remarkable. David, sorry, you wanted to say something?
3: Um, yeah, uh, 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 Joe Roberts, uh, Joe Roberts, and uh, and Marco speak. Uh, we we spoke of Marco Buseki uh, and Joe Roberts. Obviously, Joe Roberts was robbed of a um, uh, of a podium. Uh, again, he rode a fantastic race. I mean, Bezecchi also rode a really really good race. Um, uh, R- Roberts got the better of it, but then just. Literally, I don't know, maybe a couple of centimeters of his tire touched the uh, uh, touched the green and uh, you know the the green outside the track exceeded track, limit, track limits and lost the position. Uh, Michael, how did you how did you see that? Were you incensed um, or is it just the them's the rules?
2: No, I think you used the word there. Robbed. He definitely was robbed of a podium. He deserved it. He rode for it. He earned it, and he just minor indiscretion touching the green paint and for me that's when there needs to be a human element you got to look and say there was no advantage gained does he really deserve to lose a podium after a tough weekend of racing where you've gone through everything to get up there you really uh worked hard for it so i i, I do i look at it purely from the writer's point of view not i know rules are rules and you gotta if you start uh having the human element then all of a sudden there's gray areas and i do think this i don't actually know how to fix that to be honest
1: Mike, another thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, it's an opinion of mine that I've um, sort of batted around a little bit. But do you think, you know, in Moto2, you know, we could benefit from having a British team? I mean, David mentioned Joe Roberts there. We're talking about him, some rider that had assistance from the American racing team to come through Grand Prix when, you know, there's been an absence of American riders for quite a few years now. I mean, I know you're involved with the Vision uh, Vision Track uh, British Mini Bike Academy, um, you're looking after the sort of promotion of younger kids I, I i you know getting into road racing doesn't seem to really be the issue anymore because you have those feeder series like the northern talent cup uh red bull rookies you know if you have a promising youngster okay i know you have to get them on the ladder um but it seems that you know when you get to the second or third rung you know making the, the next sort of qualitative jump is, is is where the problem is i mean does britain need like a motor two team or does it need a motor three team What what do, what do you think Ideally, it gets both, to be
2: honest. I do think <laughs> you've you hit the nail on the head there. I think um, what I'm trying to do with the Youth Academy is a little bit just copying what they do in Spain and Italy, get them on on race bikes even younger, give them more opportunities. I've bought a few Moto3 bikes, so I'm going to dip my toes in the British Talent Cup with the plans to get European Talent Cup and then CEV. And we have lofty ambitions. Ideally, we would, we would take a place if one was available. Obviously, there's a lot of politics and a lot of money involved, but... Create that that uh, fill that that void either a Moto two or Moto three team like uh, American racing are doing and obviously there you've seen they've got um, two riders in there at the moment with both Cameron Moby and Joe Roberts doing doing delivering the goods and you see two australians up into moto gp for next year there will be an american up there in the future and it'll be either one of those two guys and we need to create the next the route for the next british rider so unfortunately for us the best british teams the crescent race and the SMRs there in world superbike and that tends to be where most of the british talent goes it, they gravitate towards world superbike because of the british superbike series and the teams are all there and the relationships you gain with those teams through the junior ranks and and you end up going that direction so we need to create that somehow and it'll take money
1: and it'll take uh, the right uh, political conversations but hopefully we can make it happen in the, the not too distant future yeah when you said you had bought a couple of motor three bikes there mike i was thinking yes it's you know it's a bit old for you now you're past it a little bit i think i think your day's gone a <laughs> little bit past it now
2: but yeah i'm actually looking forward to jumping on one just for because it's been a long time they're more or less the same size as the old 125s i raced 20 odd years ago so it'll be nice just to have a few laps to just to bring back the memories
0: so how many kids uh, michael are you kind of working with at the moment with this? Um... The setup.
2: We've got six in the mini bikes in the British Mini Bike Series, and we plan to uh, evolve it to two in the British Talent Cup. Actually, we probably will uh, wildcard some in the British Talent Cup this year, and hopefully, two main uh, full time riders in the in the BTC series next year. And budget allowing, we would take them to the European Talent Cup because the bikes are quite similar. Dip their toes over there, and as Adam mentioned, you've got the Red bull rookies. That's always the target to try and get if we can feed one of them in there, get them in front of the right eyes and get them on the, the tryouts and then they get that experience of all those European tracks without a, a cost implication to us as the academy, we can kind of farm them off in there. So I'll be trying to use any connections I have to open any doors for all the, the talent and get get them there a little bit sooner than we tend to, to see. So if we can get them over there at 13, 14, 15, rather than we tend to be 17, 18, 19, the British writers. Right. So yeah, try and assist that where possible.
0: Okay. And okay. Then the and kind, then of ages kind of the the ages of the kids you're working, working with 11,
2: 11 years old 12 years old I've got uh, a couple of 8 year olds uh, right. so I've got all, right. eight, all the way 8 through to 12 so I've got a nice spread and looking at riders who are actually already a little bit older that are maybe ready to jump on the Moto3 bikes now that are racing in an, another series looking at some of the motocross championships in, in the UK trying to the talent can come from anywhere it doesn't have to be from the British Minibike series so just trying to find someone who, who um, ticks all those boxes, who needs that opportunity.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, it sounds like a fantastic plan, fantastic initiative, Michael. Um, and just moving on to the final part of the show, um, we should uh, talk about Model 3 um, because we had a, a really good Model 3 race back in Mugello. Um Super close podium finish as always. I think we had 13 riders covered by... More or less, a second, um, and it was Dennis Fodje. Not can any of you guys please tell me what, what, who is this Dennis Fodje? What's his deal? Because like he's either absolutely rubbish, like he's nowhere, or you know he's up there winning races, finished in second. I mean, there's no kind of in between. There's no sixth or seventh places from it. It's just one extreme or the other. I mean, whoa, 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 what's what's behind this, David?
3: Yeah, he's not even random uh, because um, you know if he was random, he would come sixth occasionally, but he doesn't. Um, he uh, either gets on the podium or he. Um, or he finishes 15th or he doesn't finish anywhere so it's just um it, it, it he seems to be one of these riders where whenever when it all clicks he has to have everything perfect And when he's perfect it's amazing he's just an astounding um he, he, he's just a really really fast rider because he was fast all the way through practice as well um but if things are a little bit off then he struggles and i i think that is a quite a big problem um, it was also quite good to see that the um, there was a balance. Of in previous years, there's been sort of a, a difference between the KTMs and the Hondas in terms of power. And it now seems that Honda and KTM are fairly well balanced because there was a good mix sort of uh, uh, through um, uh, through sort of you know of of both bikes throughout everywhere it, it wasn't KTMs it was KTMs Hondas uh, well Husqvarnas um uh, all, all the way through so but the, the trouble with Magello is it always ends up as um being uh, sort of in the front group and then getting a, l- a little bit lucky on the uh, on the last uh, on the last lap and, and you know crossing the line first. It's always it's not like some other tracks where uh, you can actually plan uh, plan something. Um, you just have to hope that that nobody overtakes you just as you're crossing the line.
0: It was another race where Pedro Costa maybe didn't quite uh, live up to you know the performance that he showed earlier in the year finishing down in eighth but he still comes away from Magello with a 52 point advantage in the championship Michael can he actually win it this year because I mean even on his bad days like he had in France and in Magello, he still showed that he can do a really good damage limitation job in terms of the championship there's no other rider that seems to consistently be able to put the results together
2: Yeah, I think to have that kind of a point advantage at this stage in the season is such a nice buffer because Moto3, they steal points off each other every single weekend. So you don't ever get that consistent run of three victories in a row where you can claw back a a huge points disadvantage. So I think Pedro is well placed and he's consistent enough. And even as you mentioned on his bad days, still scoring inside the top 10. And I think he was unlucky. It, It was so difficult to kind of to run your own strategy at the end of the race if if you played your cards and and you got to the front of the field all of a sudden you could be eighth in the run to turn one so it was a manic race as as we expect in, in michello for moto three
0: yeah yeah never disappoints sorry david
3: yeah i mean uh top 10 inside a second so what can you say you know i mean it's just um uh, that that's just basically you know 15 guys all going for the line at the same time and then you just have to hope do you get just enough drive and just the right slipstream
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to demean Foggia's win, but I think he was the one that just managed to pop out on the run to the finish line. Um, You know, I I honestly thought, um, surprise, surprise, that Romano Fernandi would be in for the win. I mean, uh, if there's a guy that knows the positions, the track, the lines of Mugello, then it was him. And you know, starting the last lap, I actually think he had the lead. But I know after the race, he wasn't too amused with himself for making a mistake, and uh, I think he lost like four positions. Uh, I can't—it was in Arabiata two, I can't remember where it was, but. uh, uh, he made a slip and then uh, missed out. So, um, but you know, as usual, it's anybody's guess at Catalonia this weekend who could win it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are a couple of certain things in life: the sun coming up, death, taxes, great race in Moto three at Mugello, and also Romano Fanati managing to mess up a last lap battle. Sorry to say that. Uh, <laughs> so that brings us to an end of uh, of our Moto three, Moto two roundup show uh, on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, of course, this edition uh, fueled by Elf Racing. Elf Mark VDS racing team. And um, I would like to thank you all again for tuning in and listening. I would like to thank our guest today as well. David, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. Cheers now. And a very special thanks to you, Michael. Thank you for coming on the show. And uh, well, you're welcome back anytime.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you very much, guys.
0: All right, fantastic. So uh, we will be back, dear listener, next week with uh, a whole barrage of shows. We've got uh, Reaction coming up from Barcelona in the MotoGP class. Then, of course, we'll have the, uh, the extra show covering Moto2 and Moto3. So until then, see you soon.
3: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at
0: paddockpasspodcast.com.